triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Ah, the epistle of James, proclaimed boldly and with passion. The epistle of James. Everyone from Eusebius in the 4th century to Luther in the 16th was dubious at best at the letter's value to the Christian canon. James, in Luther's opinion, didn't have enough of that gospel truth to warrant careful study. Indeed, James seems to challenge that doctrine in the second chapter, so Luther called it stroy not needy. Well, James was a relative of Jesus who is usually called the brother of the Lord, and he was the leader of the Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem, whom Paul acknowledged as one of the pillars. In the Acts of the Apostles, he appears as the authorized spokesman for the Jewish Christian position in the early church. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, he was stoned to death by order of the high priest Ananus II in AD 62. He becomes the first martyred apostle. James, being a good Jew and a good Christian, wrote from that perspective. James knew the law of Moses and he saw the law fulfilled by Jesus. And he not only heard the teachings of the Lord, but he saw the works of the Lord. And those labors, combined with his background, must have made quite an impact on him. Certainly knowing the writings of the apostles, and especially of Paul, who was concerned mostly with faith, and John, who seemed concerned mostly with the personhood of Jesus and his salvation, James takes up the Christian life from a unique perspective, to Luther's dismay and, frankly, to my delight. I sometimes wonder how Christianity would have taken shape if James had written just half as many letters as Paul. If we put all the letters of Peter, James, and John together, those who actually knew Jesus in the flesh, their combined witness is shorter than Paul's two letters to the Corinthians. Paul, Paul who never knew Jesus in the flesh, wrote a good hundred pages more than all the other letter writers put together so that He was the one whose views of Jesus and God and the Torah and church and ministry and women and sex and time, salvation, the afterlife and faith, that is what took root in the early church. So let that be a lesson to all of you who've stopped writing letters and are only doing Facebook posts. You will never, ever shape a major world religion. But then neither did James. This morning, James is not going to stop until he convinces us that of all the body parts that we think may cause us problems in the practice of our faith, it's our tongues that we'd better watch out for. If we cannot figure out 
how to bridle our tongues, James writes, then our religion has no value. No value. Worthless, he writes. And as a preacher, James is something of an admonisher, a chastiser, a lambaster. If you're from the Southern Baptist tradition, you know what that sounds like. You know this is called the spit pew for a reason. And it seems that James enjoys, he's really out to rake us over the coals. And he peppers his letters with more than a hundred imperatives. Do this, don't do that. This is a mandate. Or else. Well, it's one of the reasons that Martin Luther had no use for him. But James had something to say about what it means to be Christian that is at least as important as what Paul had to say. And it's with enduring the castigation long enough to hear what is at the heart of it. You know, we find the essence of James's passion in the part of the letter that we heard just now. That God birthed us, God gave birth to us through the word. And that God brought us to being through the act of speech. After God said, let there be light, Let there be earth, seas, birds of the air, cattle of the field, creeping animals, wild things of every kind. God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. And it was so. God gave us birth to fulfill God's very own purpose, James writes. And God could have made us Immovable beings, stone beings, tree beings, beings of the air, beings of the sea, but God didn't. God made us instead human beings. Human beings in God's own likeness, capable of joining God in the work of creating just by speaking things into being. Now the problem with this plan is that God's people turned out really, really good at speaking things into being. And it took no time for them to speak things into being, to worship, to praise, to hollow, and to adore each other. And also, they took that gift of language and they used it to blame each other, to curse each other, to mislead each other, and to lie to each other. And yes, it's true that God's people had the words to also say, wait, wait, that's not what I meant. That's not the way it intended to come out. I meant something entirely different. And yes, we have the ability to ask forgiveness, to repent, to make amends. But what we don't have is we're not capable of uncreating things. Once we have created with our speech. We cannot uncreate. That's how much power that God has given us. We cannot uncreate. Once we make our words, they are made. They exist. And some of them go spinning away from us so quickly that we thank God they were good words. And some of them spin so far away with such great harm, there's nothing we can do about them. 
They are on our mind, maybe. They are out our mouth, and that breath of our own human brokenness goes with them. It is the breath of our humanity. And breath is what words are, right? We think them, we breathe them, and they become. Because remember, all we know about our Bible, it didn't start off with the written word. It started out with the spoken word. It was an oral tradition. The writing came much later, the way we found how to take our thoughts and put them onto paper. But in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. One time, long ago, everything became from the word. And you know, when we speak, our words are full of our own breath. And though you cannot judge the power of the word by how much breath it takes, right? I could stand up here and I could talk about ecclesiology and eschatological and innumerable benefits procured unto us by the same, if you like, write one. But it doesn't have the power that the small breath of love or hope or change that power. And sometimes big, airy words, they are more highly valued than the small words that sustain human life. But that's what I love about a cathedral. A cathedral allows for both. We have so many kinds of words in us and so many ways to say them. And these days we have so many media to say and hear them. And we can multiply our words in a flash like cascading images in a funhouse mirror. What starts out as a single tweet or just a brief email, it trends and in minutes, 280 characters become millions of characters. One email becomes 20 emails and people who are broken from the words. Words are flying, they fly quickly and so many of them come all the time. It's no wonder we wonder if words even have meaning anymore and yet it's so easy to forget how powerful the word is. I grew up in a time where sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. My mom taught me that when I was just very young, probably the first time I came home with torn clothing and dirt in my hair. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. And I repeated that like it meant something. It's not true. It's not true. If you want to know an example of that, I'm adopted and I once told my brother, I got picked out, you just fell out. (laughs) I'm 50 years old and I was four and I'm still living through what would make a human being say such things. Sticks and stones are nothing compared to some of the mean things that kids come up with. And now that I'm an adult, I've learned that actually just plain carelessness can often do just as much harm as premeditated meanness. Our tongues start moving before our minds are engaged. We respond too quickly without listening carefully enough. And not just the spoken word, the written word as well. My God, I'm shocked at how quickly a 3 a.m. email can turn into words where people are just done, done with community, 
done with humanity. And sometimes we have a second or two after we've let something horrible out of our mouths. Sometimes. You know, gossip is the hardest one, though. We can come up with a dozen excuses for it. There's no faster way to bond with a new friend. There's no faster way to catch up with an old friend. And sometimes we tell ourselves we're doing it because we kind of need to check out an impression of something we've seen. You know, he strikes me as odd. Have you ever seen that? You know, that was a little different. What do you think about that? Or sometimes we try to justify it on ethical grounds. Even if we're not positive that what we're saying is true, isn't it better to give someone a heads up? I mean, I want them to know that there's a possible situation going on, and you, you might want to know about it. Well, unfortunately, none of these holds up under scrutiny. It's just a runaway tongue. It's just a flapping mouth and nothing more. No one eats any better. Nobody sleeps any better. Nobody gets any more justice in the world thanks to gossip and a loose tongue. Because words that are spoken and are intended to hurt They're the black holes of God's creation. They pull in everything, every piece of energy that should be spent elsewhere, and they swallow it right up. And to James' credit, he never said, then why don't you just shut up? Just shut up. Just stop talking. Stop with the lips, moving, stop. Because that would amount to returning God's gift. And it's God's gift. So instead, he says, be slow to speak. Take your time. Think twice. Choose your words with care because once you give them life, they will spin away from you, taking on lives of their own out there where we cannot control them anymore. So James goes on to say that The main difference between our tongues and the tongue of a horse is that we can tame our tongue. We can do it on our own. We have the ability to make that choice. And the reason is because when God breathed God's being into us, that was God's word. And God's word is in us, every bit of it. We don't have to research it more. We don't have to go find it. We don't have to look it up in a book. God's word is a part of our very being, the way we've been created, James writes. All of it. We have a God-given ability to do what the word of God says. And James says, start with those who are in trouble. The poor the hungry, the lonely, those who are in need, those who are oppressed, those who are in prison, those who are lesser than you. That's where we are called to start. And James basically says, you know, if you want your religion to mean anything, then you have to allow the implanted word of God to be first to come out. To choose our words with care. And even then, to know when it's time to stop talking, 30 seconds, and to know when to start acting. Because in a world where too many words have hardened too many hearts, 
The incarnate word goes on speaking without words. God's word, God's word made flesh. And I'm not talking about the birth of one man so many years ago, so many miles away. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about the eloquence that we've been given, the gift that we have, just human beings, just like you and me.